Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It really is a beautiful day to leave positive footprints, and we're doing just that. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And we are actually starting our show in a different location with about 1,800 of our friends who are partaking in the Stop Modern Slavery walk here along the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And as many of you know, human trafficking is one of our signature issues. And we are walking the talk right now to stop this dreadful crime. As Tanya mentioned, we are coming to you live today from the mall in Washington from the D.C. Stop Modern Slavery Walk, the largest human trafficking awareness event in D.C. history. It's a united effort to bring together different elements of the abolitionist movement to raise awareness and combat modern slavery. On today's World Footprints, we're going to explore a number of exciting topics with you that deal with everything from panther conservation to insights into IndyCar racing, and an exploration of Catholicism. First up is Sandra Mickey from U.S. Fish and Wildlife to talk about preserving the Florida panther. Next, we'll talk to Simona Di Silvestro, an IndyCar racer and one of the few women on the circuit, as she talks about her progression into IndyCar racing. And I'd just like to, to mention that we spoke to Simona only days before the tragic accident that took uh, the life of IndyCar, two-time IndyCar winner Dan Weldon. And finally, Father Robert Barron will talk to us about his upcoming PBS series on Catholicism. He will talk to us about some of the buildings, places, and history that have shaped Catholicism around the world. We welcome your questions and comments at any time. Write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And of course, connect to us anytime through our Facebook and Twitter pages. Sign up for our newsletter at worldfootprints.com and we would love for you guys to join us here on the National Mall next year uh, for the Stop Modern Slavery Walk. And it's pretty remarkable that nearly 2,000 people have gathered here to participate in this event to show their support against this scourge on humanity, modern slavery. People, dogs, children, I mean, this is a family, a full family event, and I'm so impressed. This is only their third year doing this walk, and... We're going to have bands later on. There's resources. There's a kids area. Uh, I'm just very impressed by what they've done in such a short period of time. And that just demonstrates how important uh, people consider this issue to be. Throughout the show, you'll hear from some of our fellow walkers about what inspired them to walk in the Stop Modern Slavery campaign against human trafficking. Panthers once roamed the entire southeastern United States, from Florida, South Carolina, through Louisiana. However, the panther was added to the endangered species list in 1967, and today the remaining population is isolated in South Florida. The panther population has dramatically decreased, but many efforts are being made to save this beautiful animal from extinction. 
the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is at the forefront of the panther conservation effort, and park ranger Sandy Mickey from the Florida Panther and 10,000 Islands National Wildlife Refuges joins us today to talk about some of these initiatives. Ranger Sandy, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Happy to be here. How, how many panthers are left in the world, Sandy? Well, for Florida panthers, uh, the population of adults is between 100 and 160. That does not include the kitten population because, as you can, manage, uh, as you can imagine, that fluctuates up and down quite a bit. Worldwide, there are other um, related species of panthers. In fact, the, the species puma ranges throughout the world and um, most notably is in the western United States. And they're referred to by many, many different names. People know them as pumas, mountain lions, catamounts, cat screamers. There's a whole bunch of different names to refer to them. Florida panthers are simply a subspecies of the overall puma species. Mm. And and what is the, the biggest threat to the Florida panther? The biggest threat to Florida panthers is uh, habitat loss. And that goes back um, you know, even into hundreds of years ago as people started to populate the eastern United States. But in today's world, of course, it's more habitat fragmentation. It's taking any kind of habitat and actually dividing it up by putting in roads or subdivisions or shopping centers and that kind of thing. So the um, the wide expanse of habitat that they need is slowly being carved up in, in Florida. But there are some other issues, too, that, that threaten the panther. I mean, uh, uh, is hunting still an issue? Are farmers still uh, threatened by, um, by the presence of panthers in their, their area? For the most part, hunting is not a problem. Uh, that was outlawed essentially when it became an endangered species back in the 60s and 70s. So um, hunting is not so much of an issue. The um, the biggest threat, I think, in terms of um, living with panthers is just the, the education of what it's like to live with any wildlife. And that goes for somebody who might live in an urban area or a rural area. So um, agriculture actually plays a very, very important role in helping us conserve panther habitat. Um, ranches, even though they might have cows, are also usually populated by deer and hogs, and that's one of the primary prey of Florida panthers. So they do occur on those private lands, and we have relationships uh, with a number of ranchers in South Florida that we're building to protect um, panther habitat by allowing them to continue their way of life as a rancher, but also by protecting uh, the panther and the prey items that it might have in that area. Mm -hmm. And one of those initiatives is actually the um, the Everglades Headwaters National Wildlife Refuge, which will be in the, the more eastern part of South Florida. But that's a, an initiative uh, with establishing a new refuge that will uh, work with conservation easements with ranchers to help preserve their way of life so that the ranching community can, t can continue um, for you know, as long as they want to, but that their lands are also protected for wildlife. Now, talk about the recovery plan and, and some of the other efforts that uh, your agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, has been implementing to help save the panther. There's a number of initiatives that are ongoing. Uh, of course, the recovery plan is kind of the foundation for what we do, and that's for both us and the state 
Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. We work very, very closely together for management of, of Florida panthers. Um, so the recovery plan kind of dictates what we do and what our goals are for the Florida panther population. Um, in addition to that, though, is, is kind of a part of the recovery plan. There are certain teams that are set up, and one of those is the capture team, and so those are the biologists and vets that uh, collar the panthers so that we can monitor some of the population, uh, as well as an outreach team, and the outreach team is made up of multiple government, non-government, business, and nonprofit partners, and we uh, coordinate outreach efforts in South Florida, we work together to um, teach people about living with wildlife in general, but of course especially Florida Panthers. And one of the initiatives of that outreach team is the first annual Florida Panther Festival, October 29th of, of 2011, which will be in Naples, Florida. Uh, so that's an exciting event that um, is multi-partner effort that is a great initiative to bring people together to not only learn about Panthers but uh, cooperate. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there's also a genetic restoration program that breeds Texas cougars with Florida panthers. Talk a little bit about that, and, and I, I would imagine some of the controversy that arises because of the, um, you know, this genetic programming. Sure, that was a program that was run in the 1990s. Um, essentially, the Florida panther population had been reduced down to the estimates were anywhere between 12 and 30 panthers total oh in goodness. the wild. And so it had gotten so low um, because of habitat loss. Essentially, the uh, the cougar populations in the eastern and, and mid portion of the United States all used to to cross over. So there was the eastern cougar, which is now extinct, uh, and that was just declared earlier this year. Um, and so that ranged all the way up into New England and down into the southern, southeastern portion of the United States. The Texas cougar, which ranged from Texas all the way over into Alabama and Georgia and the panhandle of Florida, and then the Florida panther, which of course was in Florida and then up and crossed over between the other two subspecies. So historically, they all changed and exchanged genetics. Um, they bred with each other. And over time, as those populations got segmented, we uh, noticed that uh, the Florida panther population was becoming inbred, and especially once those numbers got so low that uh, we were worried that essentially if we didn't do anything that the species would die out. So by introducing eight Texas female cougars into the population back in 1995, we were simply restoring what had historically been there, which was that, that exchanging of genes between the populations. So it's not that the Florida panther is less pure. We actually restored it. Um, and that was an extremely successful project. In fact, that's what's gotten our numbers up to the between 100 and 160 today. It, it completely took out a lot of the genetic issues that we were seeing, heart defects, um, the kinks of the tail, the calyx across the backs, and uh, reproduction problems. And those have all been mostly fixed by that restoration program. So at this point in time, we don't see a need to do another one of those. Um, but of course, that's always on the table should should that possibility exist in the future. But right now, there's no plans to do another one. Mm-hmm. Are there are there plans to help you know restore the the former territories of of you know the black panther because they they uh, you know they could be found um, in you know as far north as South Carolina through Georgia Alabama the, you know the the Panhandle Louisiana um, and right now they're concentrated in southern Florida. Are there 
plans to kind of expand their territory back to where they were originally? There's always been um, some proposals and project ideas to reintroduce uh, Florida panthers into some of those areas. It, there's been some plans in the past for, like, Ocala National Forest and Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge and some other areas. Those have never um, uh, panned out. However, one of the initiatives that uh, will um, uh, is starting to come up is to conserve some of the land that's north of the Caloosahatchee River. And by doing that with conservation easements or purchasing available land um, for sale, then we'll be able to conserve some habitat north of the Caloosahatchee River that would allow the species to have that access to continue to move north should they choose to. At this point in time, males will cross the Caloosahatchee Rivers, but females will not. So the breeding population is restricted to South Florida, south of the Caloosahatchee River. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it may surprise uh, some some folks listening today how little, how, how diminished the population has become over the years. I mean, I, I, the numbers that you gave me, um, you know, I can't remember what what time frame we were talking about, but you know there there were a li- as little as twelve to maybe twenty panthers um, in the wild in, in this country. I mean that that's frightening to me. That's shocking. It, it is shocking. I mean, essentially, that's a you know one classroom of kids, um, and so that's if, if you think of the human population being reduced to that kind of size. Of course, there's going to be a lot of issues uh, with that. So it certainly was um, back in the '70s and early '80s that population being as low as it was was obviously a cause for concern. It still is. We're, we're, it's a, a great success story. We're now, you know, almost ten times that amount, um, between 100 and 160 adults. So it's been a great success story, but that's still a very small number. And there's still some easy things that we can do to either maintain that or slightly increase it with the available habitat that exists. And, and some of those things are as easy as just conserving uh, land with conservation easements, or purchasing land that might be available for sale, and that goes not just with the Fish and Wildlife Service, but a lot of the other partners that uh, work on panther conservation. And working with um, people who live in panther country to um, educate them on what they can do to not only protect their property and their livestock, but protect the Florida panther because um, panthers need to be wild. They need to be hunting the natural deer that occur in South Florida. They don't need to be feasting on, you know, the goats and, and um, chickens that people have in their backyards. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's, there's some simple things that we can be doing in, in the next, you know, few decades that can make a huge impact total on the panther population. One of the things that's been the most successful in South Florida is underpasses. When I-75 was built from Naples to Miami, there's an underpass built uh, every couple of miles all the way across the state. And that has allowed not just Florida panthers, but a variety of other wildlife, deer, turkey, hogs, snakes, uh, anything you can think of, to continue the link between the habitats that that road uh, now goes across. So um, those underpasses are hugely successful. They're easy to do. They are a little bit of expense, but um, they're relatively easy and don't have a huge impact on human society and can really make a big impact into Florida panther populations because the number one human cause of panther deaths is road kills. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Goodness. Um, 
you know one of the one of the uh, the things a question that I always see every every now and then, particularly you know when we're talking about wild uh, wild animals, uh, there's always somebody who's interested in domesticating a wild animal, um, which is a major no-no. So for anyone listening who may be a cat lover, as I am, um, panthers are uh, not meant to be domesticated by by any means. Um, no, no, they definitely are wild, um, and they get very large, particularly if you have a male. Uh, so, you know, males can grow um, to be 150 pounds, uh, very large claws, of course, and their natural instincts are to hunt. Um, so they want to be hunting uh, the deer that's out there in their natural habitat, and they're used to 200 square miles, which is the equivalent, equivalent of about 100,000 football fields. So for anybody who wants to experience a Florida panther, uh, putting it in your backyard is, <laughs> is probably not going to work. It's just simply not enough habitat uh, for somebody that likes to roam that much. But there's certainly ways that you can um, protect uh, Florida panthers and get involved that uh, have a huge impact and is, is needed. Volunteering with a lot of organizations is hugely helpful and, um, and needed, and uh, doing um, uh, Adoptions. There's a couple of uh, adoption programs where you can adopt a Florida panther, and um, you get like a certificate and a picture of the panther, which is a wild panther, not a, a captured one. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, there's other simple things that people can do to um, to learn to live with panthers in in their habitat. So if it's something at home, you know, if you live in maybe a rural part of Collier County, for example, if you would like to have the chance to spot a Florida panther, uh, one of the easiest ways to do that is to set up a, a wildlife camera in your backyard. And so that is triggered by motion, usually. Uh, they're a couple hundred bucks. Uh, you, of course, they can be more expensive than that. And uh, you can capture pictures of all wildlife that happen to roam through maybe the back portion of your property. So that's a pretty cool way of, of seeing that, you know, oh, there was, a, you know, there was a bobcat or a Florida panther or deer that walked by last night. And, you know, that is, I mean... For for those outside of um, the state of Florida and you know other states, uh, other countries, uh, in fact, you know, you mentioned a couple of ways that people can get involved. Adoption uh, is is one. Um, what about through your agency? Are there ways that people outside of uh, the state of Florida can can assist you with your efforts? Uh, sure. Our um, our agency, of course, works with the state to um, to work with the the panther recovery plan. But I actually work at Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, which is about twenty six thousand acres, and uh, we, of course, take volunteers. Um, now it's hard to do if you're out of the area, but sometimes it's as simple as needing help with um, advertising or marketing an event we have on Facebook, for example, or helping us to put together flyers, um, or doing some office work, uh, or making phone calls. Calls, uh, that kind of thing can be done from anywhere. And these days with the technology, uh, you don't have to be volunteering at the refuge to have a huge impact. We also have a friends group. It's the Friends of the Florida Panther Refuge. They are a 501c3 nonprofit that exists to support the refuge. And they do advocacy and fundraising um, to uh, bring to light the issues of the Florida Panther and uh, to help with projects on the refuge. So they have a couple of really neat things going on right now. They are helping to fundraise to support uh, a camera project out on the refuge. We'll be placing almost 100 wildlife cameras out on the refuge in the next few months to um, try and track some of the, the panther movement within the refuge, but also other wildlife, particularly deer, so that we can get a better idea of where their prey source is. Um, 
So they're raising some money right now to help support that project. They're also raising some money to um, help us with a restoration. We've got, in some areas of the refuge, we've got invasive plants um, and even some native ones that, because of changes in hydrology to the area, aren't supposed to be where they are. And so they're helping to volunteer and fundraise uh, to restore some of those habitats on the refuge. Mm -hmm. They also do a lot of other things, advocacy, of course. Um, They have the adoption program. So by adopting a panther for as little as $25, uh, you get the certificate and the picture and the story of the panther, which is um, out in the wild and it's colored. And uh, that's a cool way of a classroom or a family to um, to do something that really, really does help uh, with the panther population. So those are simple things that can be done from anywhere mm-hmm. to help out. Of course, there's lots of other organizations that are involved in panther conservation. Defenders of Wildlife is uh, one of our biggest partners. Um, of course, other federal partners like Big Cypress National Preserve. We also work really closely with um, Audubon uh, Society, uh, Corkscrew Swamp, and uh, Crew Land and Trust, as well as the Naples Zoo. So um, there's a lot of organizations that could use help uh, from wherever you are to help with panther conservation. Well, I think for you know for the traveling population, I think this would be a great volunteer uh, trip experience and and I would certainly welcome it um and definitely you know, yeah and one thing I wanted to mention I mean I was tickled you know w- during the time that the panthers were at the, uh, their lowest population the 70s 80s I think it was 1982 school children Florida school children voted to uh, make the Florida panther the state mammal I think it's actually the state animal uh-huh. I can't remember which it is, but uh, yes, uh, they did. And that was um, one of the things that really in the 1980s brought attention, uh, the issues with Florida panther populations. And by you know school children doing something that really on the whole is so simple but so powerful, uh, that really brought the case of the Florida panther to light through their families and through their, you know, their classmates and uh, other friends, and uh, that's all it takes. It, it really does start with one family, with one person, and they can make an enormous difference, um, especially if, if you happen to be a part of a family. Uh, you can take on something together, whatever it might be. Um, it, it does have a huge difference in the role of, of panthers. Absolutely. Sandy, what is your website before we go? Um, the Refuge website is uh, www.fws. .gov backslash Florida Panther. Uh, and that's the refuge website. Uh, the Friends Group website is floridapanther.org. Okay. And for anyone who didn't have paper and pen in hand, we will have links to uh, your website on the radio show page uh, on our website. Ranger Sandy, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you so much for having me. Up next on World Footprints Radio, IndyCar racer Simona Di Silvestro joins us to talk about her life as a female driver on the racing circuit. The racing was what I wanted to do, and uh, you know, I was really lucky that uh, that my parents gave me the opportunity when I was little. And uh, as World Footprints Radio continues from the D.C. Stop Modern Slavery Walk from the National Mall in Washington, D.C. I'm Ann. I'm from Virginia, and I'm walking today to uh, really bring awareness to the issue. I think a lot of us don't realize how prevalent modern slavery has become in this society. Um, I'm walking on a a team with a group called Fair Funds, and um, they have a mission in the D.C. area, and actually globally, to um, help uh, rescue children and adolescents who have been trafficked and rehabilitate them, give them a place to go. 
So um, that's why I'm walking. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Consider NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall for your shopping needs. There's a huge selection of stores to shop, and more stores are added weekly. Recent surveys show that more and more shoppers are looking in stores and then buying online. Shop NationwideMall.com from the comfort of your living room. Have an online store? NationwideMall.com is always looking to add more stores to complement the needs of our shoppers. That's NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall. I'm Gina, and today I'm walking because I'm trying to bring awareness to the fact that there are far too many people who are, I guess, uh, enslaved in, um, in our country and across the world. And this is part of an effort to bring, you know, as I said, bring that light, that fact to light. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Simona De Silvestro hails from a country where auto racing is banned, but she's making a name for herself as one of racing's brightest young stars. From her early start in European karting to becoming the first woman in the Atlantic Series history to have earned the most wins and pole positions and the IZOD IndyCar Rising Star Award, Simona has earned her place on the fast track. Welcome, Simona. Thanks for having me. So, okay, how did a nice girl from Switzerland end up on the IZOD IndyCar Fast Track? Tell us about this this early start. Uh, well, yeah, it, uh, it started pretty much when I was six years old in go-karts. You know, um, my, my dad got me a go-kart when I was little, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I was uh, winning a couple of races and things like that, and uh, they gave me the opportunity to just continue and uh you know that's uh, what my passion was, and uh, uh, and here I am today in the Azadini Car Series. 
So you knew at a little, you know, at the age of um, six years old that you wanted to grow up to be a race car driver. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was playing a lot of uh, different sports, but uh, but racing was what I wanted to do. And uh, you know, I was really lucky that uh, that my parents gave me the opportunity when I was little, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and having the results. So it was uh, a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I'm really blessed to be here today. So, but how did you develop your skills? Because in Switzerland, race car uh, car racing is is banned. And so, you know, when you're driving, and I saw you, we were trackside at the Baltimore Grand Prix, and you were, you know, hauling close to 200 <laughs> miles an hour. And that has to, you have to have some precision, um, you know, some precise skill to to drive courses. Yeah. Oh well, I guess uh, I kind of had a little bit of talent when when I started it, and you know, luckily Switzerland is pretty small, so it was easy to go to France and Italy, which is kind of the mecca of go karting in Europe, and um, you know, that's how I kind of started, you know, and uh, you know, I had a little bit of skills, but also you know, I had great teams behind me, you know, that uh, uh, taught me about about racing, and uh, you know, I'm still. Uh, working with a lot of people today, you know, I have a driver coach and things like that 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 helped me uh, get better every time I go on the racetrack. Mm-hmm. And so you actually developed or cultivated your skills by uh, going to other European countries uh, racing carts, Ex- go-karts. Exactly, exactly. So that's kind of how we start racing is usually in go-karts and, you know, you just enter championships and, uh, you know, you just uh, kind of earn your stripes every time you go out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I seem to recall when we met you in Baltimore that you also said you used to practice in grocery store uh, <laughs> parking lots. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's kind of like how I started racing. Uh, like, yeah, because the Switzerland doesn't really have any racetracks, so uh, they used to build racetracks in the parking lot uh, of the grocery store, and uh, uh, that's, I think, my yeah, my first couple of races, uh, I started there. <laughs> so, so how challenging was it for you, though, to jump from go-kart racing to the Indy, uh, IndyCar series? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a natural process. You know, I did 10 years of go-karting, and then uh, I went into Formula BMW, which is a kind of a smaller car. Uh, it, it looks like an Indy car, but it's a little bit smaller, and then went to the Atlantic Series. So it's kind of just a, the normal, you know, it's kind of like uh, if you play football or soccer, you know, you kind of go through the different leagues, and uh, that's what I went through in racing. And uh, and today, you know, I'm in my second year here in the Azad IndyCar Series, and, you know, I think... Uh, I had a pretty awesome career until now, and now I'd uh, just have to, uh, you know, really show show my skills in the big with the big guys. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're doing quite well because you in Baltimore, I believe you came in 12th. Is that? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So it, it was good. You know, I think uh, I think uh, this season doesn't really show where where we should have run the whole season. You know, it has been really tough. You know, we had a a big crash at Indy and and uh, really a couple a lot of setbacks. So uh, I think. This season has been one of the most painful seasons I've been through. So it's just, uh, you know, I think uh, I just have to learn a lot from this season. And I think next year we'll really show uh, that we're going to be really competitive, you know, every race out. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk to you about the car that you're you're racing. Um, you're sponsored by the Nuclear Clean Energy. So are you actually running that race car on clean energy, clean fuel? <laughs> Uh, no, well, we, we're racing on, on ethanol fuel, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, my sponsor yeah, is Entergy and, uh, and Arriva and Nuclear Clean Energy, so, uh, they've just, uh, you know, I'm really lucky to be part of 
such a great campaign. You know, uh, I don't think there'll be a nuclear car very soon, but, uh, you know, it's great to have a sponsor like this behind me. Absolutely. Well, we can only cross our fingers that, you know, the cars may, uh, the the uh, industry will move towards uh, clean driving race cars. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, you were one of three um, women in uh, in the Baltimore series, and I, I'm not quite sure where you guys went after you left Baltimore or, you know, how many races you have actually in the IndyCar series. So, so I'll ask you about that uh, as a follow-up. But um, what is actually being done to cultivate the talent of more female drivers? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, I think racing is still... Uh you know, a sport that is uh, male dominant, and you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, if you're female or or a man, you you just a race car driver, and you just try to be the the best out there. And uh, you know, I think uh, I think you know, Danica has done great things for our sport, and you know, I think I I'm I'm able to show that I can be competitive. And it's just you know, I think everybody has to kind of just go through all the all the steps uh, that uh, every race car driver has to go through. You know, if you're female or male, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, I seem to recall, you know, there was a, a scholarship fund uh, for young drivers, um, but I didn't see any young girls uh, in the, you know, in the mix of uh, scholarship recipients. And so I was always wondering, because you guys have come a long way, you know, yourself, Danica, who's now left for NASCAR, and uh, Anna uh, Beatrice, you know, you, you guys were, were uh, a formidable presence on the track. And I would love to see more, I guess, diversity, uh, gender diversity, well, diversity as a whole, you know, in the, uh, in the industry. So, uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think, uh, I think there's definitely more female, you know, getting, getting into the industry. You know, we also see like engineers and things like that who start to engineer our cars. But, you know, I think it's just a, a really tough sport and, uh, you know, I think uh, just, you know, you, you just got to kind of go through everything the same way, you know, the guys do. And, uh, you know, pretty much the kind of best, you know, if, you, if you're talented and have the skills, you know, you and you have that dream and you want to achieve it. If you work hard, you, you can achieve that. So that's kind of, uh, kind of I think, what, what is going on right now. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to anyone listening who's interested in trying their hand at car racing? How should they start? Oh well, yeah, you know, pretty much. Uh, I think in go karting, you know, uh, most of the drivers, you know, they start pretty early in go karts, and uh, that's how most of us, I think, started. So it's uh, that's where you you should start, and then you know, I think you know, if you if you have any dream and uh, you want to achieve that dream, I think uh, uh, if you work hard behind it, you can achieve it. And uh, you know, that's kind of kind of the advice. You know, if you you know, I knew since I was little that's what I wanted to do, and uh, I was lucky to get here. So. Uh, just uh, kind of that path. That's great advice too. So, uh, what races do you have coming up? Is a is a series finished, or do you have more races? Uh, we have uh, actually one more race uh, in Vegas, which is going to be the the season uh, closer. So it's going to be next, uh, not this weekend, but the weekend after, and uh, we'll see how that goes. You know, really excited. It's going to be last race, and uh, uh, we'll see how that one goes. When does the season start? Is it around May, April, May? Uh, usually starts around March, actually. Wow, early. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have uh, about like 17 races uh, per season, so pretty busy calendar, you know, as soon as it starts. And during the winter, we have a lot of winter testing, so we're usually pretty busy, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. 
Well, well, we're going to follow your your progress and crossing our fingers and toes for um, for Vegas, and I certainly look forward to seeing you back here in uh, in Baltimore next year. And of course, you know you're easy to spot because your car is like this fluorescent <laughs> green, <laughs> light green. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was good, you know. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed Baltimore. It was one of the the best racetracks, and uh, uh, you know, we we were really competitive. So you know, and uh, it was unbelievable all the people that that were out there and uh, uh, cheering us on. You know, it was a, a lot of fun and. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody's really excited to get back there next year. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing you uh, next year, Simona, and uh, best of luck for the rest of the season. Simona de Silvestro, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Next on World Footprints Radio, it's Father Robert Farron as we sit down and talk to him about his Catholicism series on PDF. So I had this, this vision of going around the world to the most kind of beautiful, evocative Catholic places and describing the faith as I show these, uh, these great buildings and, and chapels and churches and so on. So that was the idea. And uh, as World Footprints Radio continues, from the D.C. Stop Modern Slavery Walk, from the National Mall in Washington. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm a, a, I'm a law student at the uh, George Washington University, and I'm the president of the Human Rights Law Society there. Um, we're walking today uh, because uh, we believe that modern slavery and human trafficking is a uh, very major problem facing uh, not only uh, the world but also our own country. And um, we, uh, in terms of what inspired us, we this is our second year uh, being represented at the South uh, Modern Slavery Walk, and uh, we're hoping to keep growing our numbers as uh, this, this team's a bit larger than uh, last year's team. And uh, yeah, we're just we're just trying to raise awareness about the problem, especially among the law community, which can be a little bit insular at times and uh, tends to ignore uh, problems that you know uh, affect both domestically and abroad. Seneca Falls, New York. For more information, Suffrage Wagon News Channel, suffragewagon.org. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. 
A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. My name is Chris Selby, and um, I go to a church called DC Metro, and we have a small group that um, is we, we support and we pray for, um, you know, against the act of human slavery. So we thought we'd come out here today and, and take up the walk and join in and, um, you know, fight the fight. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Sism is a new documentary series that will air in over 80 public television markets across the country. Catholicism illustrates the history and treasures of a global religion shared by more than one billion people around the world. Created and hosted by Father Robert Barron, the Francis Cardinal George Professor of Faith and Culture at Mundelein Seminary and a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, Father Barron tells the story of Catholicism around the world using art, architecture, literature, music, and all the riches of the Catholic tradition. Father Barron was joined by acclaimed filmmaker Mike Leonard, a veteran correspondent for NBC's Today Show and producer of the popular public television series Ride of Our Lives. And together they traveled on a two-year journey around the world to bring the story of Catholicism. Father Barron, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What is the genesis behind the creation of the Catholicism series? Well, I would go back to um, my boss here in Chicago, Cardinal George, who asked me to work on evangelizing the culture. And so I started doing a lot of things on um, Internet with YouTube, and I've done a lot of, of course, preaching on the radio and DVDs for television and all that. But I thought all the time the best way to reach out to the culture would be through this um, kind of grand ten-part documentary that would talk about the faith, show the intellectual side, but also would show the visual and artistic side of it. So I had this, this vision of going around the world to the most kind of beautiful, evocative Catholic places and describing the faith as I show these, um, these great buildings and, and chapels and churches and so on. So that was the idea. And uh, I floated it before my board oh, about four years ago, and they said, you should drop whatever else you're doing and do that. And so wow. I had their support, and then uh, they went to see Cardinal George, because I said, well, you know, I'm a priest. I, don't, I need permission from the bishop to do anything. And so they went down there and said, we think he should do this. And the cardinal said, I agree with you, and I'll, I'll make that possible. <laughs> so he gave me the freedom to do it, and then all we had to do was raise about $3 million to make it possible. <laughs> so we started a uh, massive fundraising campaign, and to make a long story short, and with the economy collapsing halfway through our fundraising, we still managed to, um, you know, to get the money together. And then we completed, uh, I don't know how many trips it was, we went to 16 countries and about 50 or 60 locations around the world, mm. and we got it done. Now, how did how did Mike Leonard come to join your team? Yeah, well, Mike uh, is a parishioner at a parish that I helped out at for about nine years. So I would go every weekend to this parish called Sacred Heart, which is north of Chicago. And there was Mike Leonard, and I knew him vaguely from the Today Show. 
but eventually we you know met and then became friends and we would talk occasionally about how we could possibly work together and so i came to him with this idea and mike runs this production company called picture show and i said would you be able to do this would you be able to you know go around the world with me and he said yeah after we talked about it and so that's how mike got a really indispensable part of it well, yeah, you spent two years filming. Uh, you went through 16 countries. What are some of the countries that you actually traveled to? Yes, we went to Holy Land and to Turkey and to Greece, France, Germany, Poland, of course the U.S., Mexico, Philippines, Brazil, India, Uganda. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some, but we went to a lot of different places. Uh, you know, I mean, being kind of a... Um, "Quote unquote professional traveler myself, I know mm-hmm. traveling is exhausting when you're living in and out of suitcases. Yeah. How was yeah. that experience uh, for you and and the crew? It was hard, I would say. I mean, we we got along very well. We were a great uh, team. We all believed what we were doing. But as you say, it's just a hard thing. And our trips were not uh, pleasure trips at all. They were hard work because we would arrive." You know, we'd get off the plane. We'd start working right away. We didn't have a day to recover. We'd start working right away. And then frequently we would uh, change hotels or wherever every night. You know, so we'd work during the day. Then we'd get on a bus or a train or a plane. We'd go somewhere else and set up again. So they, they, were, they were difficult trips, I would say. Even though we all had a great time doing it, we all got along very well, they were, they were challenging. You know, for all the reasons that you know very well. Do you have a a favorite location or you know a, a destination that really resonated with you? Yeah, I probably would say Uganda. Um, I'd never been to uh, Africa before, and we went to Uganda to a place called Namugongo, which is outside of Kampala. It's a site where um, Charles Luanga and his companions were martyred back in 1886. They were young men, uh, newly baptized Christians, who um, refused to give up their faith, and they were burned at the stake in 1886. Mm. And on that spot, every year, on their feast day, a half a million people come, 500,000 people come, for this wildly festive mass that has African singing, dancing, the costumes, all that, plus the very stately sort of Roman... Uh, you know, ritualism, and it's just a, it was a very beautiful, very moving place to film. And so just seeing the faces and the, the um, culture of the people expressing itself uh, was something I'll never forget. That was one of my favorites. Uh, the Holy Land as well, I had never been there before we filmed. And, uh, you know, when you're a priest and you, you live with the Gospels and with the Psalms, uh, they take on a whole new resonance. They become something absolutely fresh after you've been to the Holy Land. And you've seen the Sea of Galilee, and you see, you know, what Jesus knew. and um, So all that was, that was very moving to me. I, I'm curious about the logistics of your, your travels, you know, because you did travel to some remote locations and mm-hmm. um, remote places. Did you have uh, tour guides or local people to help, help you uh, reach some of the locations you were traveling mm-hmm. to? Yeah, we had a, a wonderful lady we worked with called Nanette Knopsinger. In fact, Nanette might have worked with you in setting up this interview. But Nanette worked for the um, Today Show for a long time, so Mike Leonard knew her. And she did all the preparations for, remember that segment they had with Matt Lauer called Where in the World is Matt Lauer? Yeah. That ring a bell? Yeah. She managed all that. So Nanette was a very experienced kind of international arranger, you know. 
So what we would do is we'd sit down and we we say to her, okay, well, we want to go to uh, the Saint Chapelle in Paris. We want to go to Chartres. We want to go to the Cologne Cathedral. We want to go to the Vavo Cathedral in Krakow, and we want to go to Victory Square in Warsaw. That'd be like a typical itinerary for a few days. And she'd say, okay, let me work on that. And then she would get back to us with what she found out and what we needed to do in terms of, you know, payment or fees or whatever. So she would do those arrangements. And then usually she would work with someone on the ground. So in every country she'd find someone, often who had NBC connections, that she knew from her previous, you know, work. And then they would make a lot of the real pragmatic arrangements about buses or trains or or, uh, whatever. So it was Nanette in in league with someone on the ground in most countries is how we did it. You were granted a lot of private access, really, to sacred places that aren't open to the to the general public, and you really got to experience a lot of things that most people traveling, um, regardless of faith, really would would experience. Talk a little bit about your access to some of these sacred places. Yeah, there were so many, and you're right that we got access to places. The way they would do it often is we get in there before uh, tourist time or before the place opens. So I'm looking across my office right now at at the picture that we use as our sort of uh, emblem for the whole series as I'm walking into the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful places in the world. We got permission to go in there about 6.30 in the morning, and so before the crowds were there, and to be in that place alone, um, was staggering for me. Uh, we got into the Pantheon in Rome, which again is one of my favorite buildings in the world, but whenever I've been there, it's always filled with people, no matter what time you go. We got there at, I don't know, 6 o'clock in the morning. So there's not a soul in the place except our little crew. And that was a very powerful memory for me. Um, gosh, so many. You know, Chart Cathedral in, Paris, in, uh, in France is one of my favorite places in the world. When I studied in Paris, I'd go down there whenever I could. But also like going into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem uh, early, early in the morning uh, and filming, we found a little corner of it where there was not a soul around, and I talked there about the resurrection of Jesus. So mm. those are some of the really splendid memories. Another one, we got permission to get up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you know that's you know one of the most contested areas in the whole world and, and very volatile and difficult there had been a bomb scare earlier, so we couldn't go up. But now the second time we arrived, and I was met by three very tough-looking Israeli soldiers with, you know, the glasses, the sunglasses, and the three-day growth of beard, and they're all carrying their rifles. And So there I waited, you know, until one of them turned to me and said, I am Catholic like you. <laughs> you are? He said, yes. And then his friend said, I'm a Catholic, too, and my sister is a nun in Jaffa. Oh, <laughs> so bless. It was amazing, yeah. And then that broke the ice, and we all were kind of comfortable and joking around. But those moments were um, were kind of splendid, and uh, those are a few of the places I think of that we got sort of special access to, and, you know, mm-hmm. it was and, wonderful. And so you were wearing your collar. Is that how you were identified? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, because I, when I was on camera, I had the collar. So that was one of the things that one of our running jokes was, I was always in this extremely hot black suit. It seemed like wherever we went, you know, Uganda, Calcutta, we were in Turkey, Greece, the Holy Land. It seemed like wherever we went, it was hot. And so I was always there and sweating in my black suit for this uh, film. <laughs> I want to read a quote from uh, from Mike Leonard, your, your yeah. executive producer, and, and ask you about it. And he, he states, 
it was Father Barron's brilliant insights on life's most challenging issues that shook me to the core. Hmm. What did he mean by this? What are some of the challenging issues you explore in this series? Yeah, well, there's so much. We try to explore, you know, the great themes of Catholicism, and that means you're talking about about sin, you're talking about death, you're talking about life, you're talking about uh, redemption, you're talking about the aspiration toward union with God. I mean, all these really fundamental things. And Mike, you know, came with us. He's a Catholic, born and bred, but as he often said, I'm a, I was a cruise control Catholic. You know, he was not all that seriously engaged. And he would bring that well, kind of outsider's perspective, that skepticism to the filming. And so Mike and I, after I would do a formal stand-up, we would sit down, and he would, you know, raise these skeptical questions, and we decided to film those. And so we wove those into the series, Mike sort of talking to me um, from a skeptic's, you know, standpoint. Uh, and I think what happened to him was in, that, in the process of doing this series, of listening to my talks, of having these conversations, something began to shift in him, and, and he began to deepen his sense of the Catholic faith. Mm. Um, so I think that's what happened with Mike, and it's, that's a great part of the story. Is that something that, that you hope and or want uh, others who watch this series to, to take away as well? I mean, whether or not one is a Catholic, because this isn't a series just for Catholics. I'm no, and that's right. And Mike, he became a stand-in for a large part of our audience. He would say, well, we're going to know a lot of people that have my perspective, that think my way, that you know, wonder about things. And so Mike became kind of a stand-in for all those people. And, yeah, I'm very interested in reaching them. That's why I'm so pleased that PBS uh, is showing the series. It's almost 90 stations have picked it up. And I want very much to get the message outside the confines of the Catholic Church into the wider culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did, did you learn something, uh, I mean, as a scholar, you've studied your faith for a number of years, yeah. but did you learn something new about the Catholic faith, faith oh, during this, this series? Yeah, oh, there's so much. I did, one thing I think of is, you know, a lot of my background, I'm born and raised in this country, studied in Paris, I've taught in Rome. I've got a pretty good sense of the kind of European and American, the more Western side of the church. But, you know, I had never been to a lot of these places in India, Uganda, the Holy Land, Turkey, Philippines, Brazil. And so seeing the other side of the Catholic Church was a real eye-opener to me. And as you know, we look at the church through the Western lens, and we often say, well, its numbers are going down, it's struggling, and so on. But yes, you go to, to Asia, Africa, Latin America, the church is booming in those places. They can't build churches and seminaries fast enough. And so to see that close up, to me, was a very... Uh, was a very moving and enlightening experience. But, you know, I mean, it sounds like this, uh, the travel that you did for this series was very transformative uh, for mm -hmm. you. What did you learn about yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I'd have to go into maybe some psychoanalysis to figure that out totally. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, it, it certainly deepened my faith and deepen my appreciation for the church in the in the broad sense i mean going way beyond the pope and bishops i mean appreciation for the church in its universality and totality um i think that something we all felt that you know we survived it there's this was a difficult thing and to go to all these different countries to go through all this you know practical difficulty and we all got through it and it was a bit like a, a pilgrimage 
you know, like the road to Santiago or, or like a medieval pilgrimage. There was something of that quality. And that, that I think, changed me and uh, deepened me in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Father Baron, you also wrote an accompanying book um, yeah. called Catholicism. What are some of the y- your favorite tributes to the Catholic Church that uh, are explained in your book, whether it be art, architecture, or mm-hmm. location? Yeah, I'm, I'm very fond in the book of the uh, the second chapter on the teaching of Jesus because that's something that would appeal to anybody. I think um, we're all looking to be happy, and so the heart of Jesus' teaching, the beatitude, you know, it just means happiness, beatitudo. Um, how do you find joy? And the uh, second chapter is all about that. In the series, I did my discussion of the Beatitudes in um, Uganda. I went to an um, orphanage that's run by a former student of mine, way out in the kind of brush country of Uganda. And here are these wonderful kids, you know, we got these great uh, film of them. And I, I talked about happiness against that backdrop. Um, so that chapter, number two in the book, and the second episode of the series are ones I hope would really appeal to anybody. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as we mentioned, this 10-part series will be showing on um, nearly 90, if not over yeah. 90, uh, public television markets across the country uh, starting fall. Will you have a showing at your your parish? And does your website, or do you have a website that will also help um, people find where they can view Catholicism yeah. in their markets? Yeah, absolutely. The website's called wordonfire.org, and that has all the information, including a full listing of the PBS channels. And they're all different times because it depends on the individual channel. Um, we were delighted that, that almost all the times are very good. They're all in prime time in the evening or like a Sunday afternoon. So they're not showing them at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know? So uh, I was very pleased about that. But, yeah, the website's the best place to go. Um, we've been showing them in all kinds of places around the country. Uh, in parishes and so on. I go to a number of different parishes now, and we have had a different screenings. And I teach at the seminary as well. We've had screenings up there. So, yeah, we've tried to get the message out pretty widely. And, and will the uh, series be available on DVD anytime soon? Yeah, it's available right now. You can just uh, go to our website or go to Amazon and buy it. Um, and I'm very proud of it. It's got a beautiful packaging. I mentioned that picture when I'm coming into the Saint chapelle in Paris, and that's on the cover of the... Uh, of the DVD box. So, yeah, that's available right now. And um, it, with my uh, pure commercialism, I can say it's a great Christmas gift coming up. <laughs> there you go. Father Robert Barron, thank you so much for, for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, throughout the show during our walk for Stop Modern Slavery, the walk against human trafficking. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick. And we'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints and stop human trafficking one step at a time. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, 
call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. That's 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On.